So, Jay, Limbo isn't hell, right? It's a hell dimension, Miles. It's got a native demonic population and most of the traditional trappings, so, you know, lakes of fire, all that fun. But it's not, say, Inferno-style Limbo. What? Dude, Limbo is all over Inferno. No, 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 the other one, with the righteous unbaptized? Oh, that, no, no, it's not that Limbo. You know, I was wondering about that. Is the traditional religious afterlife version of hell a thing in Marvel? Well, yeah, it's where the straw dead go. Dude, you know that. You're a huge Thor fan. Oh, uh, hell. No, I meant hell. Like, with two L's. It's the perils of audio, I guess. You can't really hear the second L. Yeah, that gave the New Mutants some trouble, too. How so? Well, they tried to head to one L hell and ended up in two L hell because they mispronounced it. So it is a place. At several places. Whether they're parallel dimensions or all interconnected parts of the same realm is pretty inconsistent, though. So how'd that go for the New Mutants? Better than you'd expect, actually. Everyone got home safe. Awesome. And Magma got to have a whirlwind romance with the devil. What?! Jay Rachel Edison. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 109 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the second part of a two-part episode, which is part of a multi-part coverage of a multi-part crossover. Because X-Men. We should just stop numbering these. We should just be like, it's all Inferno now. It's just Jay and Miles explain Inferno. Forever. We'll change the name of the podcast and everything. We'll just like draw in some little MS Paint flames over our logo in the podcast image. Yeah, that is pretty much what we do for logo modifications at this point. It's true. There's a lot of, well, not MS Paint because we're Apple people, but you know, the equivalent. So where are we in Inferno right now? We're about to jump into the second half of the Madeline Pryor arc. In Inferno, the New Mutants portion of the crossover is over. That was the part where the portal from Limbo was opened by magic accidentally, and she got sort of de-aged slash killed. That's all stopped, so you would think Manhattan would not be possessed still, but it totally is. Ah, hell yeah, because Madeline Pryor is front and center, and she is Cyclops' ex-wife. Last episode, we covered the issues in which she discovered that she had been created by Mr. Sinister. She'd been cloned from Jean Grey, specifically for the purpose of meeting and falling in love with Cyclops, having his kid, whom Sinister would then use to continue his, well, sinister machinations. Matchmaker, matchmaker, light me a match. So, yes, she's really upset about all of these things. She found out that she didn't even have consciousness. Uh, She was just like a lifeless clone until Dark Phoenix died on the moon, at which point she woke up madly in love with Scott Summers and very, very confused. Awkward. A little bit, yeah. And so that, combined with Cyclops having left her for the person she now realizes is alive, Jean Grey, his first love, has put her in a very bad place. Thus, she has started talking to the demons Sim and Nastier, unlocked a bunch of demonic power, started dressing really questionably, and now she is a bad guy. Yeah, her official title these days is the Goblin Queen, and she is ruling over a demon-possessed New York from the top of a very demon-possessed Empire State Building. So we've got two teams in play right now. There's X-Factor. That's the original five X-Men. And we've got the X-Men, who are right now kind of demon-possessed. Yeah, they've been hanging out with Madeline Pryor in Australia, and it's becoming more clear that she's been influencing them bit by bit, and now they're all, like, you know, cruel and murdery, and their costumes are very spiky. Well, also, Nestor just straight-up ate Longshot's soul. And so, where we left off at the end of the last episode of our coverage, which covered the first half of the X-Men and X-Factor portion of Inferno, following The first us, half of the second half of the main plot of Inferno. Was with the X-Men and X-Factor meeting up for the first time, in fact, ever. They've been tangentially aware of each other's existence recently, but X-Factor thought the X-Men were dead, and the X-Men didn't really know what was up with X-Factor, but they at least thought Jean was dead. When they found out about X-Factor, it was explicitly that X-Factor were mutant hunters. 
They are, we learn very, very quickly in X-Men number 242, entirely unaware that X-Factor has in fact entirely ditched that cover and are now just openly helping mutants. Which actually brings us to the story, to Uncanny X-Men 242, and one of my least favorite opening pages. Right, now what's the narration here? This is a moment that speaks most eloquently for itself. And it's just qualitatively untrue. Because the opening is a splash page of Marvel Girl and Wolverine kissing passionately. And what you find out a couple pages later is that it's entirely non-consensual and Wolverine just like grabbed her out of nowhere and she's really pissed off about it. So no, that is not in fact an image that speaks for itself. What I really love though is I didn't realize this my first time through Inferno when I was younger, but this is a direct riff on that famous picture, the VJ Day picture of the sailor kissing the nurse. Also fucked up and non-consensual. Exactly. Like everyone thinks it's all romantic, but her body language is clearly, dude, what are you doing? This was not my plan at all. I don't like this. And so, yeah, I don't know if that was a deliberate sort of riff on the more feminist take on that picture by Claremont, but it would not surprise me in the least if it was. If it was him going, wait a minute, that wasn't okay, and this isn't either. So the teams immediately clash, as happens under the circumstances that we described in the introduction. The X-Men at this point are ready to pick a fight with anybody with pretty much no provocation. X-Factor are sort of baffled, but happy to throw down. And a lot of what's making this happen, aside from Wolverine with his non-consensual face-sucking, is that Madeline Pryor, who had previously been in her ragged, black, demonic persona of the Goblin Queen, as soon as the X-Men showed up, reverted to looking very normal and very innocent and started screaming at Cyclops about him trying to steal her baby. I mean, Rogue obviously would have her own take on that line. You know how it goes. You've listened to episodes before. And so, yes, everyone's very confused. And because of all the possession, because of all the rivalries that have been there for ages among various characters, it's a great big hero versus hero fight. Speaking of, we saw uh, Captain America Civil War last night. These episodes go up a week after we record them. And it was pretty great. If anybody hasn't seen that, I would highly recommend it. It is a very fun movie. It does not have anything quite on the scale of this. No, no. I mean, there's a lot of heroes fighting a lot of heroes, but the backdrop of demon-possessed Manhattan with smiling, uh, taunting buildings and fire hydrants and stuff, none of that in Civil War, unfortunately. Alas. Alas. So we're seeing a lot of just regular knockdown drag out. And this lasts for basically the equivalent of like three issues because we've got two double-sized issues at the start of this. And we're also seeing a lot of older rivalries coming into play, most notably Angel and Wolverine. Everyone always forgets that Angel and Jean used to have a thing way back in the day. And when Wolverine first showed up, and especially in that classic X-Men backup story, when he started hitting on Jean, Angel was super not okay with that. Yeah, and now Angel is Dark Angel. He is much angrier. He is much less restrained and much more inclined to give into his darker nature, as are all of the X-Men. So the demonic taint is kind of influencing them in different ways. And we should maybe touch on that a little bit because it really, really impacts both the shape and the outcome of the fight. Well, what interests me most is what happens to Longshot and Dazzler, because as you mentioned earlier, Jay, Nastier has literally eaten Longshot's soul. I mean, as much as one can literally do that, but it's Inferno, so I suspect one can. And so he's just become a total jerk. Like, the glow on his eye, that sort of yellow glow we've seen before that manifests when his motives are pure and his luck kicks in, now it's this sort of, like, sickly purple, and he's talking in very selfish ways. He goes to start making out with Dazzler in the midst of this fight, right as Jean's parents, who are demons, as you may recall from last episode, are trying to kill her. And she just says, basically, yeah, okay. Like, Longshot gets corrupted because his soul gets eaten, and Dazzler gets corrupted because, uh, you know. It's... I think Dazzler has consistently taken home the ribbon for most corruptible X-Men. That is yeah. sort of an ongoing theme with her. Go Allison Blair. But I kind of like that. I kind of like that she's vulnerable, that she is, in some ways, psychologically weak whenever she gets a chance to kind of be the center of attention. So we've got, you know, Longshot and Dazzler just becoming these aggressively self-centered jerks. 
Wolverine is much more aggressive, much more savage, much more combative. Storm is kind of above it all. She is largely staying out of the fight and just sort of hanging out, floating above and providing us with running commentary. And Havoc is, I would say, less corrupt to sort of at a base personality level, but at this point, entirely invested in protecting Madeline and seeing through what his brother didn't. Because Madeline, of course, has been spending a lot of time and effort for a while, not exactly seducing Alex, but certainly making herself more sympathetic to him. I mean, and they have started a sexual relationship, but he's becoming more and more blind. And that's something Madeline has become very good at. And Cyclops, meanwhile, is perpetually and really spends this part of the story on the fence between stopping Madeline and trying to rescue her. And in the process of this, we actually finally get them saying all of the same things that I've been harping on for months, damn it. So it's kind of nice to finally see that stuff on the page. Cyclops is trying to recapture Madeline after all that's happened. So solicitous now. Where were you, Scott, the night I really needed you? When the marauders kidnapped my son, gunned me down and left me for dead. What are you talking about? Madeline, I didn't know. Would it have made a difference? Of course. How could you say that? You're hurting me. I'm sorry. You always are, but nothing changes. It only gets worse because you do it again. And on the one hand, we the readers know that Madeline is playing Scott. She's playing everybody at this point, but she's not wrong. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the consistent beats in here that I really like. And something that, again, I've gone back to a lot with regards to Cyclops and Madeline in this arc is that there's a really big difference and a very clear difference here between sympathetic and right. And Havoc, of course, is another good example of that, as we just touched on, because he confronts Scott over this whole thing. The fight ultimately is ended by nastier. He shows up in what may be the coolest vehicle of all time. It's an enormous coach with like huge teeth that really looks like something off a metal album cover. Oh man, it's great. Like the sides are these demon faces and it's being pulled by these flaming nightmare horses. Seriously, I would just go and cruise around with Nastier around the streets of possessed Manhattan. It's very brutal legend. It is very brutal legend. Oh man, now I want a brutal legend Inferno crossover. I I actually want that more than I've wanted most things. I mean, brutal legend already kind of feels like an Inferno crossover. I suppose there is that, like with Daviculus and stuff, voiced by the glorious Tim Curry. Oh, it was so good. So... Nastier is Maddie's ride. He is here to pick her up and take her to the evil prom or to rise to the top of the Empire State Building for, you know, world domination or something like that. And Madeline is clear about wanting to go with him, but she also says, okay, so Scott, giving you one last either or. You can either save me or you can save her. So it's Jean's demon parents on Jean. Which is a super unfair setup because, like, one of these people is obviously in control of the situation and the other is not, first of all. But I kind of see where she's coming from because what she sees Scott's crime as having been is abandoning her. And that is the opportunity she's giving him again to abandon her to save Jean or to abandon Jean to save or at least go with or try to fix things with her. It's a false binary. It's ridiculous. It's saying, are you going to attempt to rescue or save someone who is doing something voluntarily and doesn't appear to be in immediate danger or someone whose life is in immediate peril. But the thing is, Madeline is clouding the hell out of everyone's mind at this point. So I can't blame Cyclops for seeing that as equivalent or Havoc for seeing, you know, Cyclops attempting to save Jean as yet another betrayal. Well, or Madeline for framing them as equivalent. Yeah. Because her sense of proportion in a lot of this is really skewed for reasons that we've sort of touched on and are going to come back to in a bit. Cyclops, because he's the president of geometry, finds a way to do both, but is unfortunately thwarted by Alex deciding that he is going to pull it back to the future and jump onto the tailgate of Madeline's big fancy demon carriage to follow her into whatever hell she is about to dive into. 
And this is where things get both weird and cool. I mean, they've already been both weird and cool, but like in new ways, because as this carriage careens down the streets of New York with uh, buildings with faces encouraging it to slaughter the cars it passes because this is Inferno and that's the way things go. Havoc's outfit, his like black costume with the weird head fins, starts getting sheared away by the wind more and more in a way that doesn't make sense in terms of physics. But as we see what it's sheared away into starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's basically a replica of Maddie's costume. Right. And if you'll remember Maddie's costume, that means it's not the type of costume you typically see a male character wearing. I mean, he's wearing essentially a skimpy loincloth and a very bare midriff that goes almost up to his neck in the middle. Like, it's a really feminized, sexualized costume. Oh, yeah. His job is 100% supervillain arm candy. And the semiotics are 100% about that. And actually, that's something that gets played out narratively, too. He almost never speaks in panels that Madeline's in for the rest of this. Like, he'll mm-hmm. he'll talk to people when she's not there. He pretty much universally defers to her in this. And that's, yeah, it's an interesting piece of role reversal, and it's a nice and subtle play on that. She also officially names him the Goblin Prince at this point, which, A, is kind of a silly name, but B, so I rag on Havoc a lot for never finishing grad school, And I like to imagine a world where he did and everything is exactly the same, except that his official supervillain title is Dr. Goblin Prince. Oh, man. And the other thing that would be different is his outfit's completely the same, but he's got one of those like scholar mortarboard things on top of it. No, no. Everything is exactly the same, but he's Dr. Goblin Prince. Okay. I still like my hat idea, but I'll defer to you. Or perhaps Dr. The Goblin Prince. (laughs) Oh, man. Like Dr. Mrs. The Monarch? Yes, exactly. Dr. The Goblin Prince. Perfect. But Havoc, although he's been manipulated, his mind and emotions have certainly been clouded, he's no dummy, and he actually at one point asks her, Scott and Jean, were they right about you? Does it matter? No. I swore I'd stand by you to the end, and I'm one Summer's brother who keeps his promises. Now, there are other promises to be kept. Nastier, in particular, is running on a tight timeline. The babies have to be sacrificed tonight if the portal to limbo is going to be opened. This sounds like the worst sitcom plot ever, or possibly the best. And he accidentally scheduled two dates at the same time, so he's got to run between them. It's like, so there's the one with the bow tie and the one where he's wearing the sunglasses and trying to be cool. Well, the thing is, he's kind of been doing that between all the different Inferno tie-ins and the New Mutant side and the X-Men X-Factor side. This is like one of those things where you recut a horror movie trailer to look like a romantic comedy or something. It's it's beautiful. Welp, you're ruined Inferno. Huzzah, I win. Anyway, so Madeline has decided to sacrifice Nathan Christopher at this point. One of the reasons for this is that she has discovered that he is in telepathic rapport with none other than Jean Grey, who is the person on whom Madeline has fixated as the root of everything that has gone wrong. Jean is the original that Madeline should have been. She's real in ways that Madeline feels that she's not. She's the one who ended up with Scott. She's the one who ended up with friends, with the X-Men, with a life of her own in ways that Madeline has been told over and over that she just can't have. Right. If Scott Summers' actions were a betrayal, in Madeline's eyes, Jean Grey's existence is a betrayal. And when she feels Nathan Christopher reaching out again, she's furious. Why must she always take what is mine? And Nastier, of course, is happy to fan these flames. You exist. Creation, milady, is not big enough for the pair of you. In that case, she's past due for her final exit. I'll cast your spell, Nastier. Everything you desire and more. But first, I want Jean Grey's heart. I want her head. I want her soul. Jay, you were talking earlier about how you were so excited because you got to do all the good villain speeches this time. I am. I 
mean, you've got Magneto, you've got Sinister, you've got Apocalypse, but like this is the arc where I actually get to do all of the scenery chewing. It's very exciting. And damn, the Goblin Queen is a great villain. I mean, she is freaking iconic. Well, she learned from the best. As all this is going on, the X-Men and X-Factor are continuing to fight. Until Storm and Jean Grey save everyone with the power of friendship. It is actually super heartwarming, because keep in mind, Storm has thought since the Dark Phoenix died on the moon, which I don't know in comic time how long that's been, but a long time, that Jean Grey, probably her best friend in the Marvel Universe, has been dead. And finally, they're reunited. And their elation at finally, you know, being back together is enough to at least somewhat cut through the demonic influence. Yeah, I mean, seeing Marvel Girl in the sky and Storm still in her demonic persona just soften around her, so grateful to see Jean again, it's pretty awesome. And as they come back together, Nastier attacks again, and finally we see both teams sort of united to face off against him. And geez, the dynamic here, I mean, these are characters that have so much history. Like, one of my favorite parts right here is Storm, she gets paralyzed by Archangel's Flechette's long story. Yeah, he, and is, he fires them at Nastier, Nastier dodges. And is falling to her death, and Beast catches her and saves her. Dear damsel, we simply must stop meeting like this. With the world at stake and our backs to the wall, as usual. Just like old times, eh? It's so satisfying, because these characters, we've been waiting for years for them to even know that each other were alive, let alone to be on the same side again, and especially after seeing them fight for so long. Not that they won't do so again, but still, it's pretty awesome. We also get something that I absolutely love, which is cross-team team-up moves. Oh yeah, dual-text Chrono Trigger style, it's pretty great. Right? Incidentally, this is about when Colossus comes back from his guest stint in New Mutants. Having resolved that chapter of Inferno, he is finally ready to jump into this one. Unfortunately, he tries to go with Solo at first and ends up getting tossed off the Empire State Building. Fortunately for him, Iceman is around to catch him, redirect him with an ice slide, which basically launches him straight at and through Nastier. And it's great. Like, I'm not really doing this justice in my description. I apologize. I will stick the page in the as mentioned because it is just really charming. My favorite part is that Colossus, even though he's been just thrown off the Empire State Building, a very tall Empire State Building, mind you, as soon as he hits the ice slide, he's like, all right, I know how this goes, and just goes into full Superman pose to smash Nastier, and it works really well because, okay, cold iron, great against demons. Pure heart, also great against demons. <laughs> I just really love what a Rube Goldberg fight this is. It really is. Like, I kind of want it to be like that old uh, game, The Incredible Machine, like there are alligators chasing a cat who's trying to get to a fish pole, and then Colossus flies into a demon. Oh, God, yeah. Having Inferno actually be a puzzle game based on something like that would be a lot of fun. Now, Nastier is not dead because he is techno-organic. He's nearly indestructible, which means that X-Factor needs to get a crash course in what that means because they have yet to encounter the T.O. virus. Which is kind of ironic given that Cyclops, at least, is going to deal with it a lot more than most people. And it was technically sort of a part of Angel's transmutation, but that's never really been made explicit at this point. So they get a quick telepathic course in this and they decide that they are going to, you know, once again, continue their Rube Goldberg assault on the Empire State Building And ultimately end up freezing the whole damn thing, which at this point has sort of become Iceman's default move. In fact, he comments on that because, of course, he does. So Iceman is sort of weirdly incorruptible in all of this. Everyone else is fighting and he's just like, yeah, you know, I'm Iceman. It's cool. And I like that because, okay, so Colossus is incorruptible because we already know that his metal shell, his metal form that he's stuck in these days, is sort of evil proof for reasons. But with Iceman, he's just a nice guy. Yeah, Iceman is incorruptible because he is the functional heart of the X-Men. Or X Factor at, at this point. Five, yeah. yeah. They're continuing their fight against the next form of Nastier because if he's the big boss, he's got to have multiple forms. So, form two is the techno organic form, but they've just accidentally triggered form three by freezing him, 
because he processes faster in the cold because he's a computer I love now. this logic here. Fools, you have not beaten me. Freezing has only made me stronger. Somehow this infernal cold has lowered the electrical resistance within my living circuitry. I sense the term superconductivity, enabling my system to work at near ultimate efficiency. I'm thinking with inconceivable speed. And as an information technology professional, I do want to point out that this is scientifically accurate in every possible way, just like the entirety of the movie Hackers. Okay, Zero Cool, shall we continue? <laughs> yup, do it. All right, the X-Men say, oh, well, that's okay, it's all part of our plan. They heat up the surrounding air, he's frozen, then he's superheated, then Storm hits him with a huge blast of lightning, and he detonates spectacularly in a splash page that also includes a lot of really great grinning demon buildings. It does, yeah. Every time Sylvester draws like a big spread of part of New York City, of part of Manhattan, it's just gloriously dynamic. Like, if Blevins got the details very well, Sylvester gets the large scale very, very well. Now, they're expecting that because Nastier was the big mastermind behind all of this mess, Manhattan will revert back to normal, but it definitely does not. Um, yeah. Also, there are some internal conflicts between the teams now. X-Factor is a little bit upset at how murder-happy the X-Men have gotten, which I think is understandable. Yeah, specifically, Cyclops is like, hey, Storm, maybe we could have stopped this if you hadn't killed Nastier. Because Nastier, as far as anyone knows, is pretty much dead at this point. And Storm's like, yeah, you know what? Guess who's the leader of the X-Men, bro? Not you. But I kind of like the way this interaction goes. I am Storm. I lead the X-Men. That gives me the responsibility and the right. That's not what Professor Xavier taught us. No. And X-Factor is, I suppose, the true exemplar of his dream. Now who is being ridiculous? Storm, it's Inferno. Everyone is being ridiculous. But I do like this because the fact is the X-Men have been Storm's team for a long time. And if the old leader just showed up having apparently made a lot of super terrible decisions that led to this big problem and started criticizing your methods, like, I can see some resentment going on there. Unfortunately, the argument is sidelined because Jean is yanked off panel by Madeline Pryor, who is standing triumphant with Havoc and the transformed Greys at her side. I kind of love the way this works, because we get this huge panel of all of the X-Men and X-Factor each saying something about what's going on. I'm not like, vulnerable when I'm blasting. If Cannonball was there, he would indeed say that. I wish. So, like, Dazzler is upset about being upstaged because she's still, you know, in this super, like, obsessed with fame and herself demon phase. Longshot just gives zero fucks. Oh, I actually love Longshot here. So, like, who cares? We stopped the bad guy, right? And, like, pretty rad in the process. Oh, God, Longshot Without a Soul is the 90s. I mean, he is. We already knew that he was starting that with all the pouches that Art Adams gave him. But yeah, Soulless Longshot is just this sort of self-obsessed pretty boy. And as much as Longshot's one of my favorites, like, he is totally douchey in this form. But Cyclops himself, as he sees what's going on, I love it because everyone's saying these, these long phrases and he just says, no, 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 no. So what you're saying is that everyone's basically saying their catchphrase here. And that brings us to X-Factor number 38. How long has it been since we've seen Walter Simonson draw the X-Men? God, I don't know. But yes, yeah, some of these characters, I don't think we've ever seen him draw before. I think the last time might have been when Storm and Callisto fought. Oh, right. Yeah, he did some villain art during that run, didn't he? Right. But other than that, he's strictly been X-Factor. And man, one of the things that I like most about crossovers, we've talked a lot about this in terms of the setting, in terms of the possessed New York. But one of my other favorite things about crossovers is seeing how different contemporary artists draw each other's characters and draw characters who are very, very, very closely associated with individual other artists. 
Yeah, and I love Simonson's take, although I will say he does not do the sexy goblin prince nearly as well as Silvestri, because Silvestri draws everybody super sexy, and for Havoc as the goblin prince, that's appropriate. He does make up for it by making Rogue's hair just a whole new level of spectacular. It is gigantic. Like, it's if you took Wolverine's hair and then extended it by about, like, a foot and a half on each point, and then gave him a big skunk stripe in the middle. Like, it's pretty great. It's amazing. It's sort of like some kind of fake brood crest. Uh, Almost, yeah. So... We are, at this point, sort of counting down the villains of Inferno. We've got Nastier gone. We've got Sim gone for right, New Sim Mutants. Right, Sim was taken out in New Mutants. At this point, we've got two major ones left. Madeline is front and center, and Sinister is still waiting in the shadows. We'll get to him in a bit. And so, yeah, the team is all confronting Madeline Pryor. Well, except for Longshot and Dazzler, who are just sort of preening in the corner, because that's what they do at this point. She is mocking them. And it's really clear at this point the extent to which she has been pushing all of their buttons and pulling their strings from far before this event. Once again, she sets them off fighting each other, which they do for a good chunk of the issue. But one of the things she mentions that I find both fascinating and a little distasteful as she sees Cyclops and Storm fight one another is that way back in the day, back in Uncanny X-Men number 201, when Cyclops and Storm fought for leadership of the X-Men in the Danger Room, Madeline Pryor was there and unconsciously messed with them. She had latent telepathy and she took Cyclops off his game to keep Scott with her. And I really dislike this because it kind of removes agency from all three of the characters. It removes the badassitude of Storm, who was able to beat a master strategist and powerful mutant with no powers. It removes it from Cyclops, who gets this good character beat of being screwed up psychologically by what's been going on and unable to be the person he's been, which was good character growth. And it really screws up Madeline Pryor, who at the time was just kind of an awesome character and an awesome partner to Cyclops. It just kind of corrupts all of that, and I don't like it. Well... Their relationship was kind of going to hell at that point, but I am 100% with you. This is my very least favorite retcon in all of Inferno, and that's a lot of retcons to choose from. Now, I get around this personally by having decided that Storm would have won regardless. Well, that's true. I believe that. (laughs) This bugs me a lot, and there's no good spin on it, and it's been largely discarded since. I don't think it's ever come up after this. But that's not the only reveal we get about what Madeline has been up to, because we also find out that she's been curating what the X-Men have been seeing about X-Factor. Right. As far as the X-Men know, X-Factor is just a team of straight up mutant hunters. They are convinced of this. And X-Factor is totally baffled at first until they find out that Madeline is the one who has been passing along all of the incoming news. Whoops. Yeah, or rather some of the incoming news, because all that stuff with X-Factor coming out in public as mutants and as heroes and explaining what's been going on and saving everyone, yeah, the X-Men have seen none of that. But even that knowledge isn't enough to stop this fight, because everybody's super screwed up by all the dark magics and manipulation going on, and there is this amazing panel that Simonson just kills of Madeline Pryor standing at the top of this demon head outcropping in the Empire State Building, and the X-Men and X-Factor fighting each other all the way down in this almost near-vertical surface. It's just so dynamic. It's got such motion to it, and it's got such good dialogue. Right. I mean, I think both Simonsons are killing it here. Oh, yeah. In the darkness before the dawn, I grow stronger. Negative energy rises from the battle below, fuels my power. All that I am has turned to hate. And the dagger that I have raised will rip open heaven's heart. That is some damn good speechifying, Goblin Queen. Dude, there are like five times in this crossover where I had to pause and actually double check because I kept thinking that they were using dialogue straight out of Paradise Lost, which as it turns out is not the case, but like I had to stop and look it up. (laughs) Fair enough. I'm sorry, Dr. Mykoff. But yeah, like the chaos just continues. It's, you know, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria, and it's also brother fighting brother. 
Havoc and Cyclops have so much bad blood between the two of them right now. As you may recall, they're immune to each other's powers. The blasts from one another just make each one stronger. And so it's just the two of them in basically this big fist fight. There's also a moment in it where Havoc brings down an outcropping and Cyclops just like grabs him and pulls him out from under the falling rocks. And then they go back to trying to beat each other to death, which for me is one of the most like perfect Summers Brothers relationship in a nutshell moments. There are so many little bittersweet bits here that if you've been following the comics for years, they jump out at you. You might not notice something like that as being important if you were just jumping into Inferno, but there's a lot of emotional stuff going on here. Now, ultimately, there's only one confrontation in this story, in this issue that matters. And that is between Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey. And ultimately, as it has to, it happens with the two of them alone. Madeline throws up a force bubble, pushing the rest of the X-Men out. So it's just her and Jean facing off. And Jean, of course, her first concern is for the baby, is for Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. And, you know, she makes some comment as she's trying to convince Maddie to save the kid. That sacrificing your own child is unnatural, which, you know, Jean, this woman just turned the Empire State Building into a several miles high demonic altar. Do you really think that unnatural is going to be a sticking point for her? Know your audience, Gray. Right. But at the same time, I mean, she's doing her best to make things right. Give him to me, you witch. Why should I? Little Nathan is mine. He is the only thing that was ever mine alone, and I will dispose of him as I choose. And Madeline Pryor, maybe it's that she got the villain splaining Jean from Sinister, but I think what it is is she finally has somebody who might understand her, and she just starts telling Jean what's going on in these beautiful page layouts by Walter Simonson, with Madeline's face on one side, Jean Grey's face on the other, and all this backstory in between in this sort of purpley almost sepia tone. Again, I'm going to stick this up in the the visual companion. We mentioned regularly that we do those for every episode. This is a point where you might want to actually pause and click over there as you're going, because the art is so much a part of the storytelling and the tone at this bit. Nastier showed me the truth. Every cell in my body carries your imprint. Scott could tell which was the original. And even before I understood, I hated it. Hated myself, but I hate you more. No, this is what happened when the phoenix put me into suspended animation. It stole my template, became me before all the world. And now it's happened again. I've been toyed with. My life's stolen all over again. So one of the things that I love about this scene is that Jean and Madeline are enemies. They never stop being adversaries. But there's a degree of understanding that both of them have been desperate for that neither of them could really get from anyone but the other. You know, I mentioned earlier about Inferno being all about characters who are completely wrong, but completely sympathetic. And in this, you know, this feels like that, like they're not on the same side, they're never going to be on the same side, but they each get that brief crystalline moment of actually finally being understood. And it's not just because of parallel experiences they've had. but Or because they're, you know, genetic clones. Or that either. But it's also because of a connection that we didn't really realize they had up until this point. That specifically of the Phoenix. What we learn is that when Dark Phoenix died on the moon, the Phoenix tried to go back to Jean to return the memories of its time being her. Because again, it was trying to do the right thing. It was trying to be a stand-in while she repaired herself. Jean was so horrified by the things it had done, the sentient civilization it had wiped out, the star it had consumed, and so forth, 
that she rejected it. She pushed it away and it went reeling toward the next closest thing it could find, which turned out to be the then still sort of gestating Madeline Pryor. And so that's why Madeline woke up. That's why this lifeless clone Sinister had created woke up with Dark Phoenix's last words and was in a position where Sinister could then give her false memories and send her after Cyclops to enact his grand plan, all because Jean essentially fled from what the Dark Phoenix had done in her name. The odds against Madeline, again, were double stacked here. I think this is a really important thing to revisit in terms of Madeline and Scott's relationship, because the extent to which she has been conditioned, not just from Sinister, but from the fact that, I mean, she woke up to the memory of the Phoenix sacrificing its life to save him. She is a character who was created to define her worth and self through someone else and their approval, and who had that, again, even beyond Sinister's programming, reinforced at a just unbelievably powerful fundamental cosmic level. The Phoenix is a force ultimately of just absolute passion. I feel like there was no way, even given better circumstances, that that could ever have really been reciprocal. And that was even before Jean Grey came back from the dead and Sinister did his best to manipulate events to kill Madeline to mask his own presence in this whole setup, in this whole situation. And that's what he did. That's why Madeline wasn't there when Scott looked for her toward the beginning of X Factor, because she'd been given a job by her employer, who turned out to be influenced by Mr. Sinister, to fly a plane somewhere that was then attacked by the Marauders. Madeline has been played and played and played and played, and at this point, her main concern, aside from revenge, is stopping that cold. Jean is suggesting alternatives, trying to give Madeline outs, other ways she could handle it. And Madeline responds with a line that I want embroidered on a sampler in every room of my house. Do not presume to judge me by your standards. And as much as Jean tries to help her, I didn't start what was done to you, but I'm partly responsible. So is Scott. So are we all. Even now, with all that's passed between us, we can work things out. Don't toss it all away. No! You're so smug in your reality. And you think this gives you power over me. I have my own reality. It is pain and fury and hatred. And as all this is going on, the X-Men and X-Factor are, of course, doing their best to break into this bubble, to save Jean, to defeat Madeline, and it's just not working. And part of that is that Alex is not cooperating. You hurt Madeline, Scott. You deserve what you get. And Wolverine's actually the one that interrupts. Don't blame me for not listening to Cyclops, Alex. But listen to what's going on inside that bubble and think. That ain't the Madeline you remember. Our Madeline had her problem, sure. But that thing is a demon conjuring. It's what stole her away from you. I, I remember when Madeline was lost. Helpless. It made me want to save her. That, that's why... I know. Come on. And Havoc basically shrugs and agrees to help try to breach the force bubble. I really love Wolverine when he falls into this role. I mean, we've seen him as, like, mentor to teenage girls a lot, and we'll certainly see that more, especially with Jubilee's first appearance right on the horizon. But Wolverine as just a guy who's been through some shit and has a lot of sympathy for people going through their own shit, I really like that about him. Meanwhile, Psylocke is staging her own small intervention with Longshot, who mistrusts his own luck now that it's been corrupted, but she's able to convince him that in the name of saving babies, he should be able to identify the luckiest spot on the force bubble for them to try to blast through, which is kind of a silly take on it, but, you know, teamwork. And of course it works, starting with the blade he throws, they all blast in with their assorted awesome mutant powers and kung fu grips, and break in, and Madeline figures, hey, 
I'm going to lose. I realize this now that against all these people working together, I'm going to lose. So you know what? Screw it. Let's destroy everything. And Jean is able to partially shield Madeline, but quickly finds herself sort of being pulled under with her. Blast should have killed us. The child destroyed us all. X-Men protect each other. We work together. Do you? Then let them protect you from this. Don't you feel it? You're locked to me. Chained to me by telepathic chains. Like you were to little Annie Richardson. Only I'll hang on and drag you into death with me. Lights in her mind, our mind, like stars, a universe of stars. Twinkling synapses wink out one by one till darkness swallows us. Madeline, don't do this. Live, please. Not in the same world as you. And Jean's being pulled under until, no, in the dark, a bird of fire, beautiful, deadly, undying. Free. Phoenix? No, not Phoenix. Only the piece of me that Phoenix stole. Not, not stole. Borrowed. Borrowed, then. And, and now returned. returned. Tattered, soiled, bearing death. An accident. I meant no harm. I brought Madeline life, and I can lead you back from death. But you must accept me. How can I? I rejected you. You went to Madeline trailing destruction. She had no human experience, no self, just borrowed life and stolen memories tinged with death. Doomed from birth. Phoenix, Madeline, tangled together like strands of night and fire. Where does one end and the other begin? Where do I fit in? What does it matter? I want to live. I accept you, willingly. You're already a part of me. We are one. Then live, Jean Grey. Live for us all. And the Phoenix Force goes back into Jean, and now it's Madeline and the Phoenix and Jean all together in one body. That's going to be a difficult room share. It totally is, but at the same time, this is a Jean Grey we haven't seen complete really since before the Phoenix saga happened. This is the Jean we knew as Phoenix, as Dark Phoenix, and the Jean we knew before that, and the parts of Madeline Pryor that were Jean all together. And it's messed up, and it's not going to go well necessarily, but it's also kind of awesome. In the aftermath of this, New York reverts back to normal, and the X-Men are left to sweep up the ashes and tie off a few unfinished plot threads. The most significant of whom is the man who, until now, for them, had remained unnamed as the mastermind of a good deal of what was going on. The guy who is behind pretty much every bad thing that has been happening to them for the last few years, Mr. Sinister. But before that happens, I do want to come back to one little thing, which is kind of a big deal. It hasn't been commented on too much, but this is the first time that Warren Worthington has essentially rejoined his old teammate since his transformation into death by Apocalypse. As a reward for that, he gets a new codename, one that he is going to have for the next many, many years. Yeah, and I love that it's the Beast, that it's Hank McCoy that gives it to him. Warren is brooding around, talking about how Madeline has awakened dark forces in him again, and he's just ruined forever, and he'll never... He's a good-for-nothing supervillain type who will never do anything right. <laughs> and Warren's interrupted by Beast, who says... Says you... You rescued Jean, saved Scott's brother, maybe saved us all. Don't kid yourself, you've made your choice. Forget Dark Angel. You're our official Archangel now. Heaven knows we can use one. So they're going to head off and get sinister. But there is a complication. Jean, who has been sort of holding Madeline's dead body, suddenly screams no 
and is psychically cut off from everyone else. And so, of course, Psylocke, the other resident telepath, goes into her head to try to help her, taking a few of the X-Men with her, and it just basically plays through a greatest hits version of a lot of the important events from the lives of Jean Grey, Phoenix slash Dark Phoenix, and Madeline Pryor, and they're seeing all these memories when all of a sudden a giant goddamn fist punches through the sky. That's right. And that fist is connected to a gigantic version of Mr. Sinister, who is literally smashing his way through Madeline's and, by extension, Jean's memories. And what I really love is that even though this is clearly just like an implanted thing that Sinister sent along with Maddie into this mind, even this implanted simulacrum looks super, super smug about what it's doing because, of course, Mr. Sinister. Oh, dude. Any facet of Sinister is always smug. That is his primary mutation. He's made of pure elemental smugmium. I don't think that's a real element. Oh, it is now. (laughs) So the X-Men fly through Gene's mind, trying to figure out how to stop Sinister, trying to rally Gene to fight him, and also trying to sort of figure out what's going on, because Gene and Madeline are kind of the same person here. Right, like we see this red-haired woman, sometimes dressed in various Madeline Pryor looks, sometimes dressed in various Gene Grey looks. And speaking with a voice that very much belongs to both of them. And this person, this Gestalt, explains herself why she's just doing nothing as Sinister is smashing everything, because you know what? Oblivion would be easier. All she has to do is do nothing, and everything will be ruined for the people that Madeline's so angry at. And Storm has no time for this bullshit. No, that is the cheapest of excuses, and you will not hide behind it. Creation is but the first step along the road of life. You make the decisions for what comes next. You bear responsibility for the paths you choose. Have you no pride, woman? No regard at all, if not for who you are, than who you might yet be. Now, Storm goes on to make another point, which is the one that I find really fascinating. Basically, Jean is at this point responsible for saving what is left of Madeline, who is effectively entombed in Jean's memories at this point. To what extent Madeline Pryor still exists, to what extent she has survived or will survive, she survives as a facet of Jean. And so in this case, and Storm's argument here is that Jean's responsibility to save herself is also a larger responsibility to, in some ways, save Madeline. In general, actually, Jean's sense of responsibility to Madeline post-Inferno is something that I like a lot, something I wish they'd done more with. And the conflict around that, which we do see come up a couple times, I think most notably pretty far from now when Scott proposes to her for the first time and she says no, largely because she's still got the memories of a very similar conversation with Madeline, makes her much more interesting as a character. I feel like X-Factor Jean, and it's very, very much the case in this part of the story, I think more than anywhere else we've previously seen, is allowed to be angry and frustrated and to push back against her teammates and her role in ways that X-Men Jean rarely really got to, and she is a much, much better character for that. Yeah, her role as the girl of the team back in the Stanley days, she is so far from that now, thankfully. Finally, Jean and Madeline, or the Jean-Madeline hybrid, is able to push back Sinister, goes full Dark Phoenix, pushes him out, and effectively wins. And yeah, then they head off to find Sinister himself, or some of them do. Um, Beast, Longshot, and the Greys have headed back to ship. The Greys are human again, so that's good, but it sucks nonstop to be Jean's parents. Yeah, they can't even go inside ship because they're not mutants, so ship has to like build a little shelter on the surface for them, like some little hut or tent or yurt or something. It's a techno-organic yurt. Techno-organic yurt is my new prog rock band. Longshot and Beast, they're not really sure who's going to go and help the other X-Men because Longshot like we were talking about before, he's got no confidence left in himself. The darkness is largely gone. That sort of weird possession, soul-eating thing has faded. But the demon Nastier tore away my humanity. He made my luck something wicked and made me like it, enjoy using it to hurt people. Suppose that's still the case. 
Suppose I'm still the nasty man he made me. At the moment the X-Men need me most, suppose I betray them. And worse. Aw, kiddo. You'll do okay. But the X-Men are going to need him, because they now are at the Xavier School, which they have worked out is Sinister's base. This is something that Gene was able to pull out of his mind. Oh, I love how full circle this feels, that they're kind of coming back to the place where it all started, this place where they grew up, now effectively abandoned, everything is drop-clothed. Everything has just sort of been left as they've gone off their separate ways. And in a typical awesome last dungeon fashion, they're divided into a few different squads, like, you know, some coming through the hangar underground, some coming through the attic, some coming through the Morlock tunnels. Like, this reminds me so much of Kafka's Tower at the end of Final Fantasy VI. Like, I kept hearing the music from it. Gotta wait for Psylocke. And it's pretty great, but of course, the place is well defended because Sinister knows they're coming. He's planned for everything, and he's got lots of marauders to send at them as they try to break in. It does not go well for those marauders. The X-Men and X-Factor are taking no shit from anyone at this point. So at this point, the X-Men have no apparent compunction about killing marauders, and that really bothers me. I mean, they've gotten kind of murdery in general, like that is their thing now and they're owning it. But I'm wondering about their rationale here, because if it's the clone thing, like you would think that Madeline would have maybe made them rethink the whole it's okay to just kill clones philosophy. You would, you would. But yeah, we definitely see that transformation. Like there's this uh, scene with Dazzler and Havoc. As usual, they're paired together as rivals slash companions. As Havoc straight up with no pause incinerates Blockbuster. Dazzler's horrified. Havoc, you- Did what was necessary, Dazzler, to save your lives. But I thought you never- always so afraid of your power. I've changed. And he has. A lot of them have. Also, a side note, Psylocke wrecking Sabretooth is never not satisfying. It's true, we do see another round of that. And eventually they do manage to confront, if not Sinister, at least his lieutenant, Malice, the leader of the Marauders in Polaris Lorna Dane's body. And once again, Storm has no problem with the idea of killing her, despite the fact that in this case, it's one of their former teammates and friends who's possessed. She tells Psylocke, pry them apart, and if you can't, just kill them both. Which is awkward, and we do see Malice actively terrified, because she realizes they can't be separated. Malice and Polaris are one. You know, I mean, later in continuity, we'll find out not so much, but for now, they totally are. But they are saved by the bell, and by bell, I mean Sinister blowing up the entire X-Mansion. Take a drink. Leaving only Malice standing and pleased as punch that now he doesn't have a clone. He's got the real Jean Grey, and therefore, everyone else is expendable. Well, everyone but a new hero who has come onto the scene. Longshot has got his groove back and tells Sinister, only if you kill me first. And okay, as an unapologetic Longshot fan, this moment makes me so goddamn happy. Of course, Longshot cannot even remotely take out Sinister and Malice on his own, but he doesn't need to. All he needs to do is to distract them, so Beast can come in like a blue cannonball, and the rest of the X-Men can start very quietly waking up in the background. So Longshot's arrival is the transition between Uncanny X-Men 243 and X-Factor 39, which means we're switching artists at this point. And man, Walter Simonson makes Longshot look good. He makes the hair work, which is not easy. I mean, I'm just saying, Walter Simonson has been drawing Thor for a long time at this point, and there are a lot of mullets in Asgard. He's very good at drawing kick-ass mullets. All right, so the X-Men once again try to massive team-up move Sinister, and it does not go well. He can absorb most of the energy wielder stuff. Rogue tries to absorb him, and he ends up taking over her consciousness for a little while. As he will do many times in the future with many other people, slash entire populations. And by far and away the worst off participant in this fight is Cyclops, who cannot actually manage to use his optic blasts. And it gets pretty weird because Sinister starts mocking him in a very uncharacteristic Sinister fashion. 
Because you're a sissy, Summers. You always were a sissy. Like, what? Sinister, come on. And Cyclops, that should have had way more syllables, first of all. And Cyclops even notes that, wait a minute, what's going on? We're bickering like we're children here. What is happening? Like, you literally sound like the asshole who used to yell at me at the orphanage and, ah. Oh. Wait a minute. Sinister, orphanage, the name Nathan, and the memories start coming back. The memories of Mr. Sinister being at his bedside in the middle of the night, strapping him into a bunch of weird machinery, doing bizarre experiments, and then erasing the memories of what he did before the night's over. Well, this is the first place where we get a coherent timeline of Cyclops' early backstory, because something that's been a running theme for him is that his memories of his childhood are very fragmentary. Like, he's got the early childhood stuff, but everything from the plane crash on... I mean, he didn't even actually really much remember that until, God, around um, mid-X-Men when he was running around with Despair and Lee Forrester for a little while. And we've never seen what happened basically between the crash and when he got to Xavier's. Right. We just have known he was at an orphanage. So the chronology that we get here is that basically after getting thrown out of a burning plane, his mutation unconsciously triggered. He, without realizing it, used his optic blasts to slow his and Alex's descent, which is the only reason that they managed to survive, woke up in the hospital and couldn't control his powers, promptly blasted the roof off, at which point Sinister was like, nope, let's just stick you in a coma for the next year until we figured out how to control this. Wakes up, gets sent to the orphanage where he basically gets used as a guinea pig until he eventually inadvertently, again, knocks down another wall and is able to run away in his mid-teens. And so this is where it starts to become clear. Sinister was manipulating the hell out of Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor, but possibly even more with Cyclops. Oh, actually, I missed a point, too, which is that Alex was originally there as well, but was specifically sent away to further isolate Cyclops in what I only assume was a scientific experiment based around trying to artificially create the worst childhood ever. It's possible. Sinister is really good at that. So Cyclops is controlled by Sinister at this point. And the battle is not going well. The X-Men start to wonder, wait a minute, if this guy's so invincible against all of our powers, why is it so important that he makes it so Cyclops can't use his? And so Havoc, after he is imprisoned by Malice and a bunch of metal and then freed by Wolverine, has an idea and starts being a total dick to Cyclops. Well, he's deliberately provoking him, and he's also hitting him with his own powers, which Cyclops points out, you know, this is pointless. I don't get why you're doing this. All that's going to happen is that I'm going to absorb them. And Havoc's like, Yeah, I'm not going to say that aloud because Sinister, but yeah, that's kind of the point, bro. But he's also just bringing Cyclops' emotions higher and higher and higher, just mocking his helplessness, his inability to do what needs to be done, the way he treated Madeline. And that's not what pushes him over the edge. What pushes him over the edge is Sinister getting a hold of Jean yet again and smugly and creepily kissing her unconscious form. Ew, Sinister's the worst. He kind of is the worst, but that's what it takes. And Cyclops... Oh man, you're the big Cyclops fan here, Jay. You need to describe this one. I mean, he literally just blasts Sinister to pieces. There's a great panel that's pretty much swallowed in red with just Sinister's exploding skeleton in the foreground. It's quite awesome and it's quite pretty, thorough. It's pretty intense. And it's one of the more satisfyingly cathartic moments of Inferno, although that's somewhat tempered by the knowledge that killing Sinister never takes. It never, ever, ever takes. At this point, though, I mean... Sinister's gone. Madeline is, in all the ways that matter, gone. Nastier and Sim are gone. New York has reverted. And the X-Men, despite the fact that they're still in their somewhat demonic forms, and X-Factors, despite the fact that they've just been through hell, they've won. So there's a bit of denouement afterwards as everyone kind of works out their stuff, talks through it, decides they're going to go their separate ways, but on better terms. Scott and Alex finally make up. 
get a very, very earned hug. Havoc makes an offhand comment in this about 12 of Sinister's peers as a jury finding him guilty. And I can just see Apocalypse way far away. 12? Different 12, Apocalypse. Oh, well, okay, I'll be over here then. I also take umbrage at the notion that any of these guys are really Sinister's peers. Like, I get that they're the heroes, I get that they're my favorites, but y'all are really not in Mr. Sinister's weight class. I've met Nathaniel Essex, sir, and you are no Nathaniel Essex. Does Lloyd Benson have a superhero identity? I'm going to assume so. And we get driven home the no, Cyclops is really a good guy, and this wasn't his fault, really. Which, eh, I have kind of mixed feelings about. I mean, when we were leaving Civil War yesterday, and I will say this is no spoilers here, one of the things that the movie does a lot better than the eponymous story arc in the comics is set the two opposing sides up as both being intensely sympathetic. Like, a lot of people are making really wrong choices for really good reasons in Rough Symmetry. And you mentioned that that's the thing you liked about it. I've talked about that in context of this and in context of Cyclops. And I think having that many of his mistakes just be, oh, well, that was programming kicking. And that was just because Sinister had set him up to be and do these things really cheapens what should have been character development. In the same way that that retcon about X-Men 201, about Cyclops being influenced to lose the fight with Storm, cheapens that scene. I'll agree. I mean, overall, I think Inferno is an incredibly deft handling of a lot of crappy hands of story cards that Chris Claremont was dealt by Jean Grey's resurrection. It's a really clever way to bring everything together, to bring it to a new status quo that pretty much makes sense and undoes some of the damage. But I agree. I think some of it's lost. What it does do a really good job of is set up a very specific aspect of Cyclops' personality, which is, yeah, it, it contextualizes his quest to always need to be perfect as playing against the sense that there was something wrong, that there was something off and terrible that was sort of lurking in him that he couldn't quite name or understand that he had to just try to brace against all the time. Which is, again, pretty parallel to his relationship with his powers, but having that be at a sort of a deeper and more fundamental level works very, very well, I think, with the character as represented so far. And so at this point, the X-Men and X-Factor, they go their separate ways because while you might think that, hey, now we're all friends again, let's be a team, would be what happens. It's not. Storm says they have their work to do. X-Factor has their own. And so the X-Men head back to the Outback. Right. So we've got PR squad and we've got murder squad. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But it's interesting as they go, because one of the things we see is Longshot being comforted because he's still just so broken. He's still convinced that his powers have turned against him, even when the X-Men point out that even when they seem to fail, they did, in fact, lead to positive outcomes. And that's going to end up having some pretty severe consequences for our uh, four-fingered, blonde, mulleted friend. But that stuff we'll see over in X-Men land. In the meantime, we are left with X-Factor here watching their friends disappear. X-Factor, as is their want at the end of crossovers, celebrates with a moment of joyous unity. And this time, and I think for the first time since very near the beginning of the series, it's Archangel who actually gets the closing line. It's a whole new world out there, X-Factor. Let's make the most of it. Man, our buddy Death with the murder wings, like, he's feeling optimistic. Maybe everything is going to be okay. Maybe he's not going to eventually turn into Apocalypse, get his memory wiped, and large parts of his personality get turned into a drone and end up at the center of a kind of sprawling themed event going on concurrent to a movie about the same villain who brainwashed him. Well, for now he's okay. But so yeah, that is the big part of Inferno, the X-Men X-Factor part. It's a strange crossover, but if nothing else, it has some amazing, amazing character development for Madeline Pryor, and she goes out like a champ, and it's so cool seeing X-Men and X-Factor finally, after all these years of issues, meet up, fight together, fight against each other, fight together again. I, I kind of love this storyline. 
I want to go back to Madeline because like magic, Madeline will be back eventually in a couple different forms. But she's never quite going to be the Madeline Pryor we saw here. This Madeline is, I've said before, one of my very, very favorite X-Men characters. She has been since her inception, since she first came to the comics, since before the retcons. And she is throughout those retcons. And she goes from being one of my favorite heroes to one of my favorite villains. And never losing the things that for me defined her from the start, defined her as a hero, defined her as a character. She is phenomenal and she deserves and deserved way better than she got as a person, as a character, as a way to go out and as one hell of an arc. Man, I am going to miss her a lot. Let's pour one out for Maddie Pryor. But in the meantime, you've got questions. All right. So Nuckfut81, who sounds like a delightful and classy individual, asks on Tumblr, are there any retcons that you feel improved the overall continuity or a particular story arc? Uh, yeah, quite a few. Um, the one that probably jumps out at me first is Wolverine having bone claws, as opposed to just having had his claws implanted as part of the adamantium infusion from, you know, Canada. I mean, Ooh, yeah, word, I totally agree. It's a really cool reveal when it happens, you know, after Fatal Attractions, when Magneto rips out all of his adamantium. But it also serves the character. I think that's the most important part. Because what that tells us is that that savagery, that bestial nature, has always been lurking inside Logan. That it wasn't just what Canada did to him. It's sort of his nature. And that really makes it a much more important and much deeper conflict. So I really dig that. Also, the Days of Future Past movie erasing X-Men 3. I have nothing bad to say about that. I wish X-Men 3 could be erased from our memories, too. Also, I enjoyed that Marvel kind of swept a lot of what Grant Morrison did at the end of his run with Magneto under the rug. Because as much as I love Morrison's run, the way that worked did not work for me at all, and I think it would have really damaged an important part of the X-Men universe. Yeah, that Zorn nonsense was some nonsense. You know, I think you touched on most of the big points that I would have gone to. I will say that as a blanket rule, I am pretty much of the opinion that most story arcs are improved by the retroactive insertion of Mr. Sinister. I like that guy. I feel like photoshopping him into the background, pulling the strings is pretty much always an okay choice. Sinister agrees. Yeah, I'll bet he does. Smilodon Meow. Okay, now that's an awesome name. Asks on Tumblr. Hey, we've just started listening recently and we love the show. Aw, thank you. But we're only at episode 30. We won't catch up before the next movie. Anything we should listen to now so we're ready for Apocalypse? Okay, so we're actually going to be pausing our Inferno coverage after this episode to do a pre-Apocalypse primer for 110. Spoiler for the outro. In the meantime, you might want to check out episode 6, that's Days of Future Whatever, for an overview of the cinematic X-Men, and episodes 64 and 88, respectively Ski Lodge of Apocalypse and Just Before Dawn, for a more thorough introduction to Apocalypse himself. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a variety of fictional concepts and characters, so I'm going to turn it over to Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen. I have had enough of being played as a pawn. Demons, heroes, in the end they're all the same. But you, Stephen Morton, in you I sense a kindred spirit. Join me and together we will watch this world burn and dance upon the ashes of everyone who has wronged Really, Madeline? Don't you think it's time that you stepped back and took your proper place in my machinations? There is a system to these things... As Al Ewing clearly understands, and as you, impetuous child, have never bothered to learn. 
Honestly, I'm not sure why I didn't just clone him instead. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is indeed 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be taking a brief break from Inferno to get up to speed with the live-action X-Men and their eponymous opponent. Just in time for X-Men Apocalypse. (laughs) 